You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. The Lord be with you. Oh, Lord, you really are so good to us, and we take so much for granted in our lives. Uh, We often take for granted simple things like food and shelter, more significant things like our family and friends, our church. But Lord, even our hearts are prone to take for granted the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. And so, Lord, that uh, we would know him as our great high priest who gave himself up for us to make us his children. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. All right, well, this is our, uh, this is our last class on Hebrews, and I feel like we just scratched the surface. Um, hello. <laughs> everybody was so, you know, it's sort of everybody gets so clever when the scaffolding goes up. You yell idiot, and Fred Tiardo, did you hear that at the 9 o'clock? Jesus loves me, and the clever boys, clever boys. All right, well, we're going to wrap up uh, Hebrews, and I think that uh, that benediction passage, which we actually have in our burial office, really uh, sums it up well. Uh, Verses uh, 20 and 21 in chapter 13 on page 1010. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Okay. So I'm going to do a whirlwind review of Hebrews, and then we're going to land and leave it uh, a good chunk of time for questions is is my hope. Okay. Hebrews is written in the context of Jewish Christians who are struggling. They're under persecution from the world. They're under persecution from those who are within the life of the congregation. We have no idea where they are. We don't know who wrote them this letter, although there really are hints that it might have been Paul, and I actually hint to that, hint at that in my sermon this morning. Uh, but we don't know who it is. And frankly, it doesn't matter who it is. It's the Lord. Uh, we know that um, the Holy Spirit, uh, it's pro- yeah, I think it's best that we don't know who it is because we can just say what the Holy Spirit said. And these uh, believers were starting to shrink back from their faith and even to revert back to Judaism. Um, you know, that uh, is something that happens in our own lives, um, whether you grew up Jewish or not. But we all have a default religion that we go back to. And I think it's always very interesting that there are certain people in the life of a congregation that will get upset about something or come into conflict with someone or uh, they just sort of fizzle out. And it's always interesting to me how many of those people, when they leave a congregation, don't go to another congregation. They go nowhere. And so you may have experienced that if you don't see somebody in church for six months or so and you say, oh, whatever happened to so-and-so? More often than not, it's not that they're going to a different congregation. It's the fact that they're just not going to church at all. And so in the life of the Hebrew Christians here, 
they're either uh, reverting back to Judaism, whether that's participating in the life of the synagogue, and the parallel for us, I would think, is your default religion, whatever that might be. Um, functional atheism is basically what we are, uh, a bunch of pagans. Uh, so you might not be anti, you know, I'm not going to church, but I'm not anti-Christian, but you're living your life in such a way as if Jesus doesn't exist, right? You're denying his lordship, whether that's through, um, you know, I hope God is going to get me through this, but really it's going to be up to me. Um, uh, Jesus says uh, that I shouldn't worry about tomorrow, but that's all well and good. Um, and you see that, that language begins to morph into uh, really antagonistic, unchristian language that begins to show that a heart is hardening. Because uh, on the one hand, um, of course, God um, doesn't expect us just to lie around the house and that every day there's going to be a shipped order sent to us that is charged to God's account. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread, how does God give us a daily bread? He raises up a farmer to grow the wheat. He raises up someone to uh, turn uh, the wheat into flour. And then he raises up someone to uh, take that flour and turn it into bread. And then he raises up somebody to drive a truck to take that bread to the market. And then we have people at the cash register that sell us that bread. You see, God chooses to use us to, uh, to provide daily bread. But nonetheless, all good gifts come from him. But what was happening with the Hebrews is that they were losing their focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And they didn't even know it. So they actually would say, well, you know, I, I, I'm a Christian. I'm still following after Jesus. But objectively speaking, they weren't following after Jesus. They're like the person who has gotten into the ocean and they're sitting there and they're having a good time and then they look up and all of a sudden they realize that they've drifted because the tide, the rip current, has moved them down the beach. And it was imperceptible to them. And so if you've ever been to the beach and gone out into the water, how do you know, normally, if you're paying attention, you try to keep an idea on an object, a building, a flagpole, the color of your umbrella, whatever it is. And when you begin to drift, what do you do? You adjust. And in the same way, the author of Hebrews is saying, you need to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus because you're drifting. We're not drifting they would say. Now, if you've ever been on the beach and watched people out in the water, when you're on the beach at the fixed place, it's much easier to see them drifting, isn't it? And is that judgmentalism? Well, I don't want to offend them and tell them that the laws of nature are forcing them down the shore. No, of course, you would say, like I do, I yell at the kids, I let them drift so far, and I say, everybody get out, and we move back up the beach, and they get back in, and they drift back down. And so Paul is actually exhorting them to yell, you're drifting. Get out of the water, move back up, but this time try to stay fixed, try not to drift. And the way that you do that is by keeping your eyes fixed upon Jesus. And he said again that the problem is that people tend to harden their hearts. He quotes Psalm 95 at length, which talks about the rebellion in the wilderness when the people of God began to grumble. And grumbling, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, puts grumbling on the same level 
as idolatry and sexual immorality. And yet, grumbling is probably one of the most often tolerated sins in the life of the church. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to do is to encourage one another, do not harden your hearts today. Because the thing about a hardened heart is that it's not as if you're walking along one day and you're like, you know, I've got a hard heart. It just happened. But actually your heart begins to calcify over time. And if you know somebody really well, you can tell that it's happening. Now sometimes I'll run into people and I'll think, golly, why are they so bitter? I don't think that they woke up one morning and said, today I'm going to be bitter. But something happened to them in the past that caused them to be what they are today. And their hearts became hardened. And in the same way, the author says, don't allow that to happen. Because if you look at the Israelite exodus, I've mentioned this, well, I've mentioned all this stuff I'm talking about, so I'm going to stop saying that. That in the wilderness, grumbling was a real problem with the Israelites. And we know that Moses was challenging the people and saying, stop grumbling. But one of the great problems that the Israelites struggled with, that the author of Hebrews picks up on, is how much more effective it is when a fellow Israelite says to another Israelite, stop grumbling. So it's one thing for the preacher, for Moses, for someone in a position of leadership to get up and say, y'all need to stop grumbling. It's something entirely different if somebody who's a fellow sojourner walking along with them says it. So imagine, if you will, two Israelites walking together in the wilderness, and one starts a very innocuous conversation. Do you remember those cucumbers? Man, those cucumbers were good. Meat pots? Oh, the meat pots. Pretty great. You know, maybe Egypt wasn't so bad. You know, there's no record of anybody in the Exodus saying to those people, are you serious? I mean, look, uh, cucumbers, meat pots, fantastic. But do you remember making bricks without straw? Do you remember the plagues? Do you remember the yoke of Pharaoh's slavery on our necks? You can have your cucumbers and meat pots if it means going back to that. You have lost perspective. You've forgotten. You've drifted not only as to how bad life was in Egypt, but how good God is. And yet there's no evidence that any of the Israelites said, you need to be checked. You don't know what you're saying. You have a much rosier picture of the past than is reality. And so the author of Hebrews says that when you hear a brother or sister begin to talk about the cucumbers and meat pots or whatever it is, then you should, you should go back. I mean, I had somebody uh, one time, and I can tell the story now for various and sundry reasons, but one person came up to me and they said, hey, we want to meet with you uh, because uh, I, um, I just want to make sure that I have an established relationship with you. And that person said, I started coming to church under this dean and rector, and I really didn't like them because they did this, so we had a falling out. So I was really excited about the next rector, but there's no way I really like them. And then don't even get me started on Frank Limehouse. He was always, you know, blood, 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 and sin, 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 and all that. And so now I'm hoping that you're the dean and rector, that things will be different. And I said, there is a common denominator here. <laughs> right? But nobody had said to this, this person 
The problem is you. The problem is you, that you're grumbling. And sometimes that person needs to be checked, and sometimes that person, as Hebrews tells us, needs to be encouraged. That's why it talks about running the race, that it's an agony, that we need people to help encourage us on, and not just to cheerlead, but also to help us to pick us, help and pick us up in the life of the race. And to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who is our great high priest. And the, the letter to the Hebrews spends a lot of time about talking about that day of atonement. And we talked about how the lamb, that the blood was uh, uh, on the mantle of the door, that they were eating uh, with their sandals on and their staff ready and their traveling clothes on. Um, and the day of atonement, uh, the Passover... It was a Passover meal that Jesus presided over when he made that covenant with his, with his disciples. This is my body, this is my blood. But one of the great differences, not just the Passover, but the Day of Atonement, is when the, the animal that was used to, um, that was slayed uh, for the sin, the sin offering, that carcass was taken outside of the camp outside of the tabernacle, outside of the temple, and it was burned. But the covenant that Jesus makes with us, the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb that was sacrificed for us, where is it? It's on the table. And we're able to partake of him. That he's our priest, he's our victim, uh, and he's, he's our, our Lord, he's our king, he's our savior, he's all of those. So prophet, priest, and king, all in one uh, one person. So he was the once and all for all sacrifice uh, for sin. And this encouragement to go on, to go on, to go on, to go on. We're on our way to heaven and we want you to go with us. And so then he closes with this benediction. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. This is just a summary of Hebrews really. That God came and dwelt amongst us. And this God of peace, when we talk about the peace of God reigning in our hearts, it's not just a feeling of everything's going to be okay. It is that, but we forget that at one point in time we were enemies of God. It's very hard for us in our culture to, to understand that. We don't like talking about it because everybody likes to say, well, we're all children of God. And it's some, in, some, it's, in some ways that's true. That we're all made in the image of God we bear the mark of our Creator, and therefore uh, are, as the um, Declaration of Independence tells us, that we're entitled to certain inalienable rights. Right? As image bearers of God, that's who we are. And yet, the Bible is also very clear that amongst humanity, there are people who are enemies of God, and there are people who are children of God. Going farther, we're told, further, we're told that there are those who are objects of wrath, and there are those who are objects of mercy. Now, for some reason, this doesn't make it into elementary school, Sunday school. I don't know why. But that's the picture that is, is painted. So when we talk about the peace of God, it's not just everything's going to be okay, but the incredible announcement that we're now reconciled with God and we have peace with him. Now, for anyone who says, well, that's not really the part of the Bible that I like to talk about, it's throughout the entire Bible. So an Old Testament example of this would be Noah and the ark. Does anyone want to argue that there were those in the flood that were objects of wrath and those who were objects of mercy? Who were the objects of mercy? The really good people? 
Go back and read the account of what happened right after the flood. It goes bad real fast. So it wasn't that. But God saved people out of sheer grace. And then, when it was all over with, God made a covenant with Noah and said, I will never ever flood the earth again. And as a sign of my covenant, I'm going to put this rainbow in the sky to remind you of the covenant that I've made with you, the promise that I've made with you. Now, a rainbow uh, in uh, Noah's day and certainly really before the modern era uh, and the word that is used to describe the bow in Hebrew uh, is the same word that's used for bow and arrow. And that's what it is. It's a battle bow. And so when Noah and his descendants and even his spiritual descendants, we who are here at the Advent today, look at the rainbow, what do we see? We see a battle bow that is no longer aimed at the earth, but who? God himself. And that battle bow was loosed upon God on Good Friday 2,000 years ago on the Lord Jesus Christ. That he died the death that we deserved. All the sin upon him was laid. So when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's feeling the forsaken, God's judgment against sin is being poured upon the Lord Jesus. Fury, wrath, all of it comes down. Now we can have conversations about what all this means theologically. Um, So when we talk about the peace of God, it's much more substantial and significant than thinking everything's going to be all right. It's the why everything's going to be all right. We have peace with God. We're not his enemy. He's not our enemy. He's our God. He's our Father. We've been made his children. So the author of Hebrews wants them to know that. The God of peace, think of what you've been saved from. And how he did it? He brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus got up bodily on the third day. And he's our great shepherd of the sheep. Right? Sometimes it says the bishop of our souls. Right? He's, this is sort of priest-like language by the blood of the eternal covenant, not just a worldly or earthly covenant, not one that is temporal, but actually one that is everlasting and to the end. And the promise of the Holy Spirit that he will equip you with every good that you may do his will, working in you that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ to whom be glory forever and ever. But the promises of God are irrevocable, And so why would you want to turn your back on them? Do you really understand the alternative to Christianity? That's that's what the author of Hebrews is painting for them. You know, this is that that there there is a choice here. And he says, look, I know it's hard. The Christian life is really, really, really hard. But that's why the life is hard, which is why Jesus came into the world in order to save you. And so that's how he closes. And, uh, and then he has a little PS, a little postscript. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. It only took us a year uh, to get through all that. Um, but, but you see this word of exhortation, he's pleading with them. He's pleading with them, don't give up, press on. 
You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see if, you, if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send your greetings. It's like you're getting a postcard. Those from, who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. Uh, the end. It's kind of a funny uh, little ending, but nonetheless, that's how the letter ends. And that's the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, questions, comments, concerns? Well, y'all got it, good. I had a meeting the other day that lasted an hour and a half and I didn't say a thing. And it was the hardest 90 minutes of my life. Uh, but I'm learning, I'm learning what it means to be quiet and patient. And so, do you have anything to say, David? Well, you referenced our previous deans, and I, for me personally, uh, you know, our previous dean Frank uh, message at all of his Bible studies is, you know, if we say we are sinners, we deceive ourselves, or say we do have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And before that. Paul's all was the second colic before Thanksgiving. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. And so I still wait with anticipation what you're uh, going to give to me. So what you're going to write on my tombstone? Is no, that what you're saying? No, what you're going to open your Bible studies with in the future. Oh, a rote prayer. Your lasting message to David Tanner. Yeah, I, the lasting message to David Tanner. Where do I start? Um, you know, I would... But the, you, as you said, that there's a universal rejection of our leadership in the church yeah. by a certain group of people that are, I guess you'd say, grumblers who would include all of us. Yeah, it's not particular to the Advent. Yeah, this is, I mean, you're right to say that it's a universal condition that, look, I mean, people are going to read the letter to the Hebrews. The people that are met, the people who receive this letter just like the letter to the Corinthians, just like pretty much any letter that is written. And the initial reaction is they're probably going to be ticked off. I mean, you see like how, the, how uh, John writes in Revelation about, you know, uh, the church that is lukewarm that gets spit out. What if you're in that church? And, and it's easy for us to read the Bible at arm's length and think, well, I'm just so glad I'm not like those Corinthians or I'm like, not like those Hebrews or I'm not like the people uh, in, in any of the cities in Asia Minor that, that John is talking about. Uh, but in fact, you know, uh, I pointed out that Hebrews is a word for us today and this is illustrated uh, in um, chapter uh, 3 and 4 where... The author of Hebrews, who's writing in the first century, is appealing to a scripture passage that was written 2,000 years before that, which is talking about an event that happened 2,000 years before that. And here we are today reading a, that from 2,000 years ago. So it's a word to us today. 
I mean, there are, there is such a thing as context and, and, and speaking a specific word to a specific people. But I think that Hebrews, the author, is, is saying, no, 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 this is today, as long as it's, it's today. So I would hope that, you know, one of the things that I hope is that God is always, God's word is always doing its work on my heart. And that if, if I don't want to fall into the trap that the Hebrews have had, and, um, and we see this. I mean, we see people who have, uh, I mentioned this last week, real gospel men and women that I went to seminary with who have forsaken the gospel. Um, some of whom are, and I just always thought when people would fall away, I thought that they would fall away in the sense that they would get burnt out, that they would get overwhelmed. But actually, one of the most heartbreaking experiences that I've had in ministry is seeing brothers and sisters who have just turned their back on the gospel. And that's, that's not a kind of a roundabout judgment. I mean, it's, it's pretty explicit and clear, which is why I think um, Hebrews uh, says in uh, chapter 13, verse nine, uh, 8 and 9, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. But there's a propensity to, to focus on something rather than the gospel. Either that's to think that there's something additional that needs to be added to it, or actually I need to go back and dismantle what I once said to you which is truth, but I've been given a new insight, and so I'm going to take that away from you. So when it comes to, to what, in my life, I mean, I, I hope that, that I would be rooted in the incarnate word, Jesus Christ, and the written word of, of the Bible, and that God would continue to work in my life. I mean, I, I get it. I do feel like the chief of sinners. I mean, I hope you heard that in the sermon this morning. Not that I hope you heard that, but but First Corinthians 13 really did a number on me this week. I'm a jerk. Don. Uh, well, we don't think you're a jerk, Andrew. Uh, well, that's because you don't know we, me. We understand your sentiment, though. Um, just sitting here flipping back through uh, Hebrews. Um, I don't know if this is true. Uh, I never went and checked it out, but somebody said that in the New Testament, the word better is used uh, something like 19 times, and 13 of those times or in the book of Hebrews, and um, it's such an encouragement that he tells us that you know Christ is better than the angels, it's better than Moses and Joshua, Christ is better than the Aaronic uh, priesthood, faith is better than law, and it's, 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 as you just kind of page back through it, this theme of the final revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ, right. who is now prophet, priest, and king, the, the concept of better, better than the the the, uh, uh, the food back in Egypt, and that's just true in our lives. Is the the more that uh, the Holy Spirit seems to work on our our hearts and our lives and, and work its way into us, it's like around every corner there's an aspect of uh, who we are and who He is, what He's done for us that is better, and it's mm. surprising every morning, even though it shouldn't be, and yet it right. is. And there's there's a so to me, there's a real word of, of uh, hope and encouragement as you look back over uh, all you've been teaching us for the last year. Yeah, I wonder if I, don't, if I wouldn't look at it like going to the optometrist. Better, worse. Better, worse. And sometimes do you say, it's the same thing. 
you're, you're tricking me. I mean, I know that they are tricking you, but, um, but at the same time, sometimes it is hard to determine what is better and what is worse because what our head says is, I know that Jesus is better, but I have this. Uh, or, but that's not the way that the world works. But if I do that, then, then people are going to, I mean, th- this sounds childish, but it's true. People are going to make fun of me. I'm going to lose face. I'm going to look like a fool. I'm going to look like an idiot. Uh, and yet, um, when I read Hebrews, that idea of better coming out is, is something to encourage me that knowing that, yeah, I may lose face. I may not be popular in the eyes of the world. Um, I may take, I may, it means sacrifice in my own life, but I know that this is better and that I need to press on in that direction and not go back. John Halsey. Andrew, I've, I've heard you talk several times in this series about uh, progress. Yes. And I wonder if you had a chance to um, think about how uh, the idea of progress in the book of Hebrews may differ from kind of our cultural ideas of progress. Yeah. And, and, and maybe kind of part B to that is how do you distinguish between progress and perseverance? Maybe that's part of the answer. Yeah. So, I, I mean, you can, I mean, let me know what you think, but most people in the world think, and even in the, I wouldn't say most people in the church, but there are a lot of people in the church who think that progress is primarily moral improvement, that you're going to get better and better as, as time goes on. And I don't think that that's what Hebrews is saying. Hebrews is saying, though, that yes, uh, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ has certain moral implications, and he spells those out in, in chapter 13 as he, as he closes it up when he talks about um, uh, uh, the marriage bed, money, um, compassion for those in prison as in prison with them. Uh, so these are things that, that ought to be a description of the Christian life. But of course, you can do all of these things and not be a Christian. And that was the testimony of John Wesley. You know, he was living an austere life. He was visiting widows and orphans. He was visiting a prison daily. He was in a prayer group that met and prayed into all hours of the night. And so much uh, did their life reflect holiness that in Oxford they were called the Holy Club. And, um, and then they got the name Methodist because they were so methodical about the way that they went about their ministry. And then, of course, Wesley comes to the United States as a missionary to Georgia, completely fails, completely fails, and realizes, I'm not a Christian. That all of those things that I'm doing are actually out of obligation and duty rather than a changed heart and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for me. So I think that that's the great difference. And if there is any sort of progress, I would say that for the Christian believer, it's an increasing awareness of your need for the Lord Jesus Christ on a daily basis. You actually become more aware of your sinfulness and just what it is you're capable of, which makes you run to the Lord Jesus and to throw yourself upon him. I think that's the work of the Spirit in the life of a Christian and really shows uh, marked progress. I mean, and I hear it, um, you know, people will accuse 
me of saying, well, it sounds to me that you're singling out particular sins for judgment, whatever they may be. And my answer to that is, well, if the Bible's talking about it, we probably need to talk about it too. But B, the difference is, is I think that if we're talking about certain and particular sins, it's the difference between the person who says, yes, I'm sinning, but it's not that big a deal, versus the person who says, I'm sinning and I wish I weren't this way and I need to stop, which is the Christian. So for me, my sins are a lot easier to hide than most people's, which is a nice advantage that I have. But I don't say, well, Andrew, you're an impatient person and that's just the way that God made you and so just roll with it and it doesn't really matter. Just try hard to be nice. No, my response is, God, I got a real problem. Uh, My impatience actually is weighing so heavy on me and my treating people less than you've called me to treat them, love them even. I don't want to be like this. I want to love others in the way that you love me and that you call me to love others. So you see, there's the big difference. There's the big difference. Um, So I don't think that the Christian life is one necessarily marked by moral progress, but um, it's marked by a greater understanding of sin and its control in your life. But I do think that you see victory on this side for the most part. Sometimes you don't. Remember Paul said, I prayed umpteen times for the Lord to deliver this thorn in my flesh, and he never did it. And yet Paul saw that, well, God didn't remove this because he wanted me to lean on him. Because if God had delivered me from that, I would think, I'm pretty great now. I no longer have a thorn in the flesh. But God maintained that thorn in the flesh in order to have Paul lean more and more on him. I don't know if that helps at all, John Halsey. Dan. Having seen bitterness display itself in friends and even family members, certain family members, I sometimes really... um, dwell on the fact I don't want to be bitter right I heard bitterness described or defined one time as the fruit of unmet expectations how would you define it elaborate on it tell one how to check oneself on becoming bitter and keeping from becoming bitter yeah so I think that you're right the the root of bitterness being defined as unmet expectations. That's a good definition for it. Uh, The Bible does talk about it being a root. So if someone is displaying bitterness, it's not just manifesting itself in the life, but it's actually got a root. It's got a hold. And so the controlling agency of the person is the bitterness. It's not, it's not the Holy Spirit. It's, it's bitterness. And in that That takes, I mean, Hebrews makes the point that that is really, really hard to root out. It's really hard to root out. And often those who are closest to the situation, especially in terms of family members, it's almost impossible. It has to be a work that God is going to do in their lives. And so I think there is a place for exhortation to say, I think you're growing a little bit bitter. You know, you're, you're bitter about this, which unmet expectation means that they think that they know better than God. 
God has seen fit to work things out this way, but you think that they should have gone that way. And so you see there's a whole bunch of, all of a sudden you open up a Pandora's box of issues that need to be sorted through. But I think sometimes people are so far gone into bitterness that you really do have to give them over to God and let the Lord sort them out. I mean, I, I deal, you know, the thing about it is, is when you deal with somebody who's really, really bitter, it ought to engender some compassion for them in that you realize this person has really suffered through something. Even if it's an unmet expectation, it, is, it has changed their lives. And so they ought to be an object of compassion, not one of scorn and, and judgment. Because we can just as easily, Hebrews tells us, you can just as easily fall into it as anybody else. I mean, I, I had a parishioner in a former parish who um, was awful to me, just terrible. And I was ready to read the riot act and say, you're out of here, pal. And I had a conversation with him one time, and he said, you know, that no man in my family growing up ever told me that, I lo- that they loved me. My father, my grandfather, nobody told me that they loved me. Not an uncle. Well, that's a totally different... Now, rather than me saying, you're being a jerk, it's... And you're trans- that's transference. Yeah, I'm, in a, I'm much younger than you are, but I'm in a position of authority, so you're, you've got dad issues and you're taking them out on me. And there's a root of bitterness there. But you see how I can depersonalize in that situation and say, they're actually not bitter toward me. They're bitter about something completely different. And so Luther talks about this in terms of the creature waiting. And that requires relationship. I want to go to the dark place with you. What is this really all about? Because, I mean, have you ever read, why do they hate me so much, someone in your life? Why are they so angry? Why are they so upset with me? And I can guarantee you that it has nothing to do with you. It's, it's something else in their life and the root of bitterness, and it's got to be pulled up. And the other thing, too, is that people begin to gra- have a dependency on that thing that is causing the bitterness. I mean, I, go back and read The Man at the Pool. Remember that the pool would fill up once a day, and uh, according to legend, an angel would touch it, and the first person in the pool would go down. Well, the man had been there for years and years and years. Read that really closely, because what you find is there was a man who was very proud and actually began to avoid the pool, because he began to think, of course I want to be healed, Being a paralytic is all I've ever known, and I can't think of myself apart from being paralyzed. And so actually, the real paralysis is, what does my life look like as a different person? Which is the Christian life. I'm afraid to give my life over to Jesus because I'm afraid I will be a different person because he promises that. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.